sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Dobbs? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, I'm Brian. Hey, it's Murdoch. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. It's been too long since we've talked about 80s metal on this show. That's what the people say. <laughs> Did you hear that? That was like an exasperated type of passionate like noise <laughs> for me. I mean, we sort of, like, we knew that this show would always sort of have that at its core just because you are riding shotgun on this show, right? So, like, we knew that that's where we were going to sort of gravitate. But you, the fans, have, have been very vocal about what you love, and you you love everything. And you're, you're, you're nice about the episodes about Jerry Rafferty and Tommy James, too. But we know that sometimes you got to give the people what you want, and today we're going to do that. We are the story guys at gmail.com. Puts you in touch with us. I, I'm... Uh so doubly excited you know because i don't really know where we're going but i know kind of where the area we're gonna go yeah we're going late 80s late 80s instead of early 80s and let's start here this is the note that we got hey guys i work with a kid in a factory on the factory line who was running his mouth the other day about greta van fleet being a led zeppelin ripoff and i tried to convince him that this wasn't the greatest zepp ripoff of all time, and that once there was a band who sounded so much like Led Zeppelin, people actually thought it was a secret <laughs> reunion. Can you fill in the details on that? <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about Greta Van Fleet first. What are your feelings on Greta Van Fleet? You know, when the very first single came out, I really, I really did like it, and and but then like I think there was like a, a couple of the other singles came out I liked one after, and then I just I completely spaced out, like stopped listening to it. You told and me I, about I saw, them. I, I did see them on SNL, and I I wondered, like who who on their team said I think it looks great because I was like these guys look like freaking they look like guys running around like with bananas hanging from like their under their sleeve like it just all this fringe like yeah, yeah. It, it 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 it's just uh for fashion it just seems to be flat and ridiculous considering what you're trying to do musically and for me that's a that's a thing that I see but I'm also an old man at this point. Yeah, yeah. But the costuming is a bit much, and I think we all agree on that. I couldn't actually remember what went down with Pitchfork. I just remember that Pitchfork really got upset about Greta Van Fleet, so I went back and found the review. Fall of 2018, Pitchfork gives Greta Van Fleet uh, Anthem of the Peaceful Army, that debut record, a 1.6. Yeah. On their 10 that, I remember. Scale. Yeah. 1.6. <laughs> You have to say it slow. The review was written by this guy, Jeremy D. Larson, and this is the opening line of the review. Greta Van Fleet sound like they did weed exactly once, called the cops, and tried to record a Led Zeppelin album before they arrested themselves. <laughs> what the, oh my God. Man, can you imagine the first person in their team that gets to read that review to another person? Like how... Like how freaking screwed oh, up i mean how screwed up everyone's day is <laughs> you have like a whole team to support you know da, 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 whatever their thing oh, their I, thing is I, i'm not so, sure keep we, going keep we, going keep going i want to hear the second sentence have we have we dug into my distaste for pitchfork elitism on this show because i really yeah. really hate those sorts of reviews yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to see this review as anything but mean spirited, and I'll I'll spare you the pearl clutching hyperbole used to mock and deride this band. But I do want to mention something that I find sort of interesting as an insight, which is Mr. Larson's assertion is that in this inter in this uh, review is that the reason a major label wanted to sign this band was that at the end of the second decade of the two thousands this would work well in the algorithm that feeds music through streaming services. This is the closing paragraph of the review. Listen, but for as retro as Anthem of the Peaceful Army may seem, in actuality, it is the future. It's proof of concept that in the streaming and algorithm economy, a band doesn't need to capture the past. It just needs to come close enough so that a computer can assign it to its definite article. The more unique it sounds, the less chance it has to be placed alongside what you already love. That's a really interesting 
point. Yeah. By the way, by the way, Pitchfork gave Super Drags in the Valley of Dying Stars a pretty mediocre review, and that record's been praised by former guests of this show here, and that's the one. That's where I've got some serious issues with. <laughs> you're you're with holding. Pitchfork. You're mad at him just for one, just for one review in particular. That's uh, a freaking. That's an amazing record. It, it is a good record. I saw that tour. Uh, now I'm not here to debate the truth of whether or not that point is true that that writer makes, but. Wow. I mention it because to the point of the letter that has started this episode about this guy listening to his coworker mention Greta Van Fleet, this is not the first band that, quote, sounded too much like Led Zeppelin, right? No. And, and the one we're going to talk about today happened way before the internet. And in fact, I think that the lack of the internet uh, is really what this whole story thrives on. So you sort of have two different cases, right? You have a case where the case can be made for Greta Van Fleet. It's all about the internet, and that's why that band exists. And then I think the band we're going to talk about today might have a different place in history, or at least the way this all came about and the way things went down might have been very different had there been an internet. So just put that as, as sort of a lens that we view all this through, because I think it's an interesting precipice to view it from. Man, do, do you know that Kristen Wiig SNL character where she's the lady that can't stand it, where she's got a secret and she wants to like blurt it out and she's like biting her hands and she's freaking out like, that's me right that's now. Right I don't even know what to do. I can't even stand it. I can't stand it. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Okay. So I want to say, hey, by, who, who wrote the letter? We want, I wanted to thank Oh, Oh, John. John wrote the letter. Hey, John. Hey, John. Thanks for writing the letter. Okay. About this amazing band. Okay. That we're going to talk about. Okay. Before we before we talk about them, the added layer I'm interested in putting on this conversation has to do with why rock history has continued to keep Led Zeppelin in such a sacred space, right? Yeah. Bands are often compared to their influences, but it doesn't usually negate their relevance, right? Like we talked on a recent episode where we were say like, what bands sound like the Beatles or were influenced by the Beatles, right? And you ran off a whole list. And your mileage may vary on bands that sound like the Beatles, but typically, quote, sounding like the Beatles is a badge of honor, not a detriment. People don't say, like, I don't want to listen to that band. They sound like the Beatles, right? And Yeah. No but, one- but, you know, there's something that permeates everything with Zeppelin, right? Did you see the um, – uh, I don't know. I'll give it a shot. Did you see the – the first the first Van Hagar tour? Did you see that tour? Mm-mm. No. They they um I think they open with There's Only One Way to Rock. So they open with a Sammy Hagar solo song. Uh, and at the end they played rock and roll. Okay. Right? Okay. And it's like and it's like, have you ever watched a concert and there's a band that's not Led Zeppelin and they play rock and roll at the end? It's like rock and roll all night. Right. Right. But in a very, but it's like, it's like this anthem song, but it's not stupid like Kiss's song is. Right. 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 And it's, it's, it, the, it's, there's something about that song that's just screams rock and roll. Like, and so, so what you're saying is they are foundational to rock and roll. And so, but, but you would say the same thing about the Beatles. The Beatles are foundational to pop music. Sure. But pe- right. but my point is people don't get upset when your band sounds a lot like the Beatles. No one criticizes a band for sounding just like Billy Joel or Fleetwood Mac. Right? Like if if a band comes out now, if an indie rock band comes out and they sound like Fleetwood Mac, like Heim or They're something, getting- people will be like, "Oh, this is great. We love this. It sounds like Fleetwood Mac." Yeah. But for some reason, Led Zeppelin is territorial. There's a, something about it with the fans. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I and I have a and theory. I can't- I can't wait to tell you something about my theory and the experience I had about this band. Oh my god, what did I do to myself? Okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I do have a theory. You have a theory. We're going to get to both of them. Uh, But first, let's get to the original case of critical and fan freakout as it relates to Led Zeppelin sound alikes. Let's talk about. Do you want to say their name? Kingdom Clone. I mean, Kingdom Come. (laughs) <laughs> okay, the story actually begins with another band. Do you know the name of the band before There's Kingdom a band Come? Before, but I don't know that band's name. So they're called Stone Fury, and Lenny Wolf is the guy behind Stone Fury and Kingdom Come. And Lenny Wolf says in interviews while promoting Kingdom Come, 
he basically sells himself out and says the Stone Fury sucked, which is funny to read in interviews. But in 1983 in L.A., this guy Lenny Wolf moves to California from Hamburg, Germany, and he yeah, starts he starts a metal band. It's a German guy, and they're semi-successful. They get a record deal on MCA, but they never go very big, and they eventually fizzle out. You can you can find the like the one record online, and it's it's it is metal, and it doesn't to me does not sound anything like he doesn't sound like Robert Plant on that record. In 1987, though, Lenny Wolf is looking for a new project. And because he's already been in this other band, he has got a little bit of cachet, and he gets a deal with Polygram. But he needs a band to play with him. So he holds auditions, and he finds some talented, fledgling bar scene types, and they form what will become Kingdom Come. Kingdom Come. You know who, you know who they record with, right? You know who does that record? Uh, no, I can't remember. Bob Rock. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, but right, does everything he touched totally kick ass? The cult <laughs> Sonic Temple? I mean, well, he did some records that, that turned some careers around, right? Black Apple? Yeah. Yeah. And so they uh, they choose the lead single off the debut self-titled full length, and it is a song called Get, Get It On. It on. My fingers would be so tired. This is so much work. <laughs> See, it sounds like what's up. Yeah, I mean, I had I had to let Lenny sing. Like, you've got to hear his Robert Plant impression. It's it's pretty spot on, right? So, I mean, that song jams. What what what, what were your thoughts? Because you were listening to metal in '88. So when this came out, what did you think? I think that I I think there was part of this I did like. You know, it's like the verse is kind of interesting. It sounds so much like Zeppelin or whatever, but. Um, it was real heavy rotation. So is, was it Polydor or Polygram? Who it's, had po- the, it's Polygram. Polygram, yeah. So they had they had they were heavy in the pocket on uh, Headbangers Ball. So that song was like all the time, and it was like it's so. And at some point, and I don't want I don't want to I'm not going to blow all this, but like at some point, think about that. It's 1988. I'm 14 years old. I have no internet. Right. I have MTV. I have Rip Magazine. I have Metal Edge Magazine. Yep. I've got whatever else, like other the like the other like also ran metal magazines. Yep. How do I know that everybody thinks that this band sucks? Because that's what I heard. <laughs> right. Right. So that's what we're going to talk about is right. the, the dichotomy between what people like you thought in 1988 and what the music press thought in 1988. Because notice, I went straight to Pitchfork when we were talking about Greta Van Fleet, right? I'm not I'm not going to the man on the street because Greta Van Fleet, I've met people personally. I, I just remember this. I met a woman at a conference one day and we were talking, we're sitting at a table, you know how that happens, you're at some business conference or something. And I met a woman and I started asking her like what she was into and stuff and she starts telling me how she's been following Greta Van Fleet around. So like there are people who love Greta Van Fleet and they probably yeah. love Led Zeppelin too. I mean this is the same thing as the Chuck Klosterman did this piece years ago where he saw Creed and Nickelback on the same night and he was talking about like you know those rooms are full. Like sure the music press talks a bunch of crap. Yeah. But and there's still rooms- people that pay a bunch of money to go see these guys play. Those rooms are totally full. It's the whole thing about like you guys who sellouts. Right. We do every night. Right. So they put out this song, Get It On. And what happens next isn't really their fault. Now, there are two versions of this story that I came across. Now, one says that Polygram puts out a sampler tape and sends it to radio stations with Get It On and nine other songs from nine other artists on it. And when the guys at the Riff in Detroit, which is, a for those of you who are not radio nerds and don't just know what that is, a huge rock station with a lot of muscle, 
when they hear get it on, they just start decide to start playing it without telling anybody who it is. And they just nice. roll tape. Yeah, that's great. Now, that's one version of the story, but I in all this research I found other versions. The another version of the story I saw was that Bob Rock and Lenny Wolf fly to New York to mix the record at Electric Lady Studios. And during the mixing session, there's this A&R guy who's sort of a legend named John Kalodner. And he stops by and hears the song and he takes a copy of the cassette with him. And it's that tape that ends up at the riff. And mm, and, okay. and in this version of the story, Polygram doesn't know anything about it. And Lenny Wolf has said in an interview or two that other stations actually just recorded the song off of the riff and started playing it. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if any of this is even verifiable. Um, and, and then <laughs> he, so crazy. yeah, he also says that the America, uh, American music industry magazine album network reported, like did a whole piece, like being like, who is this band? Right. So the, the key component here is wow. this band wow. comes out and they, they've got a pretty kick-ass song. And if you just heard that song, you'd be like, Oh, okay, cool. It's this band kingdom come. Yeah. They sound like Led Zeppelin. But when the song drops, nobody's talking about who it is. And this is why I'm saying it's important to point out the lack of internet. Right. Because to your point, people are hearing a song and they have no way to get information about it. And it sounds a lot like Led Zeppelin and no one is telling them it isn't Led Zeppelin and there is nowhere to turn but to each other. So if you want rumor and innuendo, the rumor is that this Get It On is a secret Led Zeppelin reunion happening in real time and people lose their minds. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's so crazy. I remember people like, I remember it just being, it was just really out in the open that they sounded like Led Zeppelin. And I mean, it was just, and I mean, Headbangers Ball was like what I did and like, it was on well uh, every week. So man, they got on that tour. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. We're we're going to get, we're going to get to all those things, but (laughs) what you have to understand is that's later when they get to MTV. This is first. So this happens in, in early 88, in January. Yeah. So they record it in 87 and in early 88 um it gets on the riff. It becomes the number one requested song on album-oriented rock stations all over the US for a month and a half. It it gets so much traction. The Polygram moves up the release of the record in rush ships a half million units. <laughs> wow. So here's where we need to stop down and put Kingdom Come to the side for a second. Because they get a gold record. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, they sold a bunch of records. And if there's people listening and they have never heard of Kingdom Come before, I just want you to spend a couple of minutes looking around and reading about them because there was a moment in 1988 where you could not get away from them. And the fact that they have not really sustained at all uh, and that you could be a pretty big music nut and not really know anything about them points to how much people sort of turned on them. Now... Let's pause here, though, because I think this is where we start to dig into the question of why is Led Zeppelin so sacred and why are people so protective of Led Zeppelin specifically? Yeah. Okay. This is my theory. You ready for my theory? I'm ready for your theory because I, it's something. There's something there. So the theory I have about this whole thing has a lot to do with a part of that band's history that I think doesn't get mentioned nearly as much as the musical accomplishment, which is good. I'm glad that we are we judge Led Zeppelin on their music, right? That we don't do that right. for very many people. But we do it for them. To understand this weird pop cultural moment, and to maybe even understand why bands like Greta Van Fleet just draw critical ire, I think it's important to talk about the tragedy of Led Zeppelin. I'm not going to start us all the way back at the beginning of the band, other than to remind everyone that they start with a hand up, right? They, they, they're sort of the rock and roll equivalent of being a rich kid. Like, they have everything going for them. They're the new Yardbirds, dude. Yeah, they are the ashes of the Yardbirds, authorized to keep the name, but they yeah, decide not they, to. They did perform as the new Yardbirds before they changed the name. That actually happened. Jimmy Page, Chris Dreja, they start looking for new people to put in this band. Um... Plant gets recommended for the role by a guy named Terry Reed, who turns it down. Side note, Terry Reed, fascinating figure in rock history, who spent his entire life turning down prestigious gigs. <laughs> like, do you know much about him? 
I, the name's familiar, he, but I, I don't know. Okay, so he put out some songs on his own. We're not going to go down this, but I, I would maybe we will in the future sometime, and I would say you definitely should if you are if you care about this sort of stuff. He's so interesting because he has a couple singles you can find from the 60s where it's just Terry Reed, and he does sort of sound like Robert Plant, like he has the same similar sort of voice. Um, and his whole career is just like people being like, hey, will you be in this band that may or may not be a big deal? Um, we're going to be Led Zeppelin. And he's like, no. And then like, they're like, Hey, do you want to be in this band? And I forget the other ones, but there's like two or three huge bands that try to recruit him as a singer. And he just tells them no. And like, so now he's totally obscure and he had multiple, multiple chances to be like a household name. But anyway, this is all to say the odds are already in their favor. And then things go better than anybody could have imagined. So if we flash forward to roughly nine years after their first show, they play their first show as the New Yardbirds in 68. In 77, they launch yet another North American tour, and they start setting massive attendance records. In April, they put 75,000 people in the Silver Dome. Crazy things happen at these shows because it's total chaos because there's too many people. A few weeks before that show at the Silver Dome, they were in Cincinnati. Now, we typically think of a different band causing problems with crowd control in Cincinnati, but they did it first. They were there for two nights, and a bunch of fans tried to gate crash. Did not go well. In June, they're doing an outdoor show in Tampa, and there's a thunderstorm. It's a rain. They have yeah. to cut the set short, so you know this story. It's 40 minutes. Essentially cause a riot because yeah. they have to go off stage. There's this weird kerfluffle in Oakland that puts Bonham and some of their team in jail. Do you know that whole story? Yeah, um, and Peter Grant. Yeah, Peter Grant, Bonham, yep. Bonham and Peter Grant went to jail in Oakland, but I forget what happened. I think there was a drunken disorderly fight and there were police involved. It has to do with somebody being right. rude to Peter Grant's kid or something. It's very confusing. There are Reddit threads if you want to lose your mind for a little while and try to parse it all out. But yeah, basically Bonham and... Peter Grant, it has Bill Graham's involved as the promoter, so it has to do oh, with... Oh, that's, yeah. that's right, because Bill Graham was really pissed off, too. And may I say, but not yell this in all caps, but if everyone can hear me in all caps, where is the Peter Grant biopic? And who gets to play ex-wrestler, then manager of Led Zeppelin, Peter Grant? Because <laughs> what a freaking awesome movie idea did I just give uh, someone. Hey, I, I can only control what I can control, but there maybe there's a Peter Grant rock and roll bedtime story on the way. Who I, knows? I mean, maybe. Uh, okay, so now, I, I lay all this out because I want to give you the timeline. So these, these massive shows are happening April. This craziness in Tampa is happening in uh, June. Then there's the weird kerfluffle in Oakland. We get to July. End of July, they go to the Louisiana Superdome. They're about to do a couple nights... Uh, there in New Orleans and Robert Plant gets a call and his five-year-old son has died from a stomach virus. Yeah. Heartbreaking and stuff. The, and that's the end of the tour and almost the end of the band. Exactly. Tragedy number one. Possibly the lesser known of the two only because of who the next person to have a tragic passing is. And this does almost kill the band but it doesn't. And by the end of the next year 78 they record in through the outdoor in sweden and again just to show you the magnitude of their fan base when this record comes out when in through the outdoor comes out all of led zeppelin's output up to this point comes back onto the billboard charts <laughs> that's how big the clamor is for this band at this point yeah and they were really worried about the fact that they were a very unhip band and the and and like you know while they while they, after they had to get off the road because Robert's life got sidetracked in an enormous way, um, the Sex Pistols happened, the Ramones happened, Kiss Alive happened, yeah. Frampton yeah. Comes Alive happened, Elvis died, yeah, Disco happened, and and uh, and they had to you know. I mean, you make a great point. You make a great point because in the late 70s, they were a little bit more, like I know someone is going to yell at me via email about me saying this out loud, but I'm going to say it. They were sort of Nickelback for the time. When you look at pop, when you look at the pop culture of all the trending, I'm just saying in terms of not being trendy, they were hugely popular. 
everyone is going to want to not listen to our podcast. <laughs> what what kind of insanity did you just say out loud? My word. This is my point. You're this even you're e- you're even talking to your friend who has <laughs> at one point had all seven nights, seven nights of the LA Forum shows in 1977, the la- this last week of June. I had all seven of those shows on cassette. I'm not saying that they are Nickelback. <laughs> I'm saying that if we were going to try to make a cultural comparison, they were not the super hip. They were very popular. They were not super hip. Okay? So insert whatever band you want to say is is right. super popular but not super hip. Imagine Dragons, right? Imagine oh. Dragons. Very, very popular band who sells out stadiums or, or at least arenas. You you and I are in the same place, but we're like thinking about it differently. When but but really, it when In Through the Outdoor came out, like as the one seriously unhip band. There's yeah. like no way around it. Yeah, well, okay. And what I'm saying is history has shined a light on Led Zepp, partly maybe because of what we're about to talk about, right? And people got very protective, and the cultural feeling about them became that they were one of the greatest bands of all time, as opposed to a washed-up band, partly because they did not go into the next century doing stadium shows and reunion shows and stuff, right? They, yeah, they ended, you know. They actually like, ended, which no band does anymore. And, and when they tried, when they, oh my good lord, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but when they tried to get back together in 85, Jimmy Page was so slobbering, messed up on heroin, he could barely we're, play. We're going there. All, oh, we're getting there? We're oh getting there. Good. Okay. Right. Now, the right. obvious second tragedy occurs, right? <laughs> they, had, they had a close call with, with John Bonham's health, their drummer, for somebody, if you've just never heard of Led Zeppelin. In summer of 80, he collapses on stage. They tell everybody he'd overeaten, but people are starting to speculate that he's got a problem. And then September 24th happens. He's on his way to practice with the band. He stops for four, not one, not two, not three, four quadruple vodka shots for breakfast. And the legend goes, he does say, oh, breakfast, as he shoots them. And then he keeps drinking all day. And they're staying at Jimmy Page's house. And Bonham is taken to bed, physically moved to to a bed and laid on his side after midnight and is discovered dead due to choking on his own vomit by their tour manager and John Paul Jones the next morning or the next afternoon. Are you saying cuz I didn't know this for sure. Are you saying that he died in Alistair Crowley's house? No. So Alistair Crowley's house is before this house. This is the house after that house. I can't believe somebody didn't like tell you about how evil these these buttholes were when you were a kid, dude. It became the part about how mysterious and evil the band was because of the connection with the occult Mm. because jimmy page bought alistair crowley's house (laughs) so um so it was just sort of thought that maybe he had he had went down to the crossroads too page did in fact purchase crowley's former home in loch ness scotland in 1971 and later claimed it was haunted but not necessarily because of Crowley. There were two or three owners before Crowley moved into it, Page told Rolling Stone in 75. It was also a church that burned to the ground with a congregation in it. Strange things have happened in that house that had nothing to do with Crowley. The bad vibes were already there, man. A man was beheaded there, and sometimes you can hear his head rolling down. He just dropped that in a Rolling Stone interview. Yeah, not that great. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. Okay, so anyway, back to where we're going with this story. We talked about this a bit in our Drummers versus the Rest of the Band episode, but after this happens, there are rumors that the band's going to go on, but they don't. Uh, at one point, uh, Carmine Apice, who we talked about in that Drummers episode, uh, and about a half dozen other drummers are all sort of keyed up to, to join. Tony, Tony Thompson yep, yep, yep. Uh, was, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but by December 1980, Zep releases a statement Quote, we wish it to be known that the loss of our dear friend and the deep sense of undivided harmony felt by ourselves and our manager have led us to decide that we could not continue as we were. So, wow, deep breath. Think about the highs and lows here. They're literally at the peak of their fame when things start to spiral out of control. Do you know people had, you can buy them, people had uh, tickets for the U.S. tour. You can buy the stubs. Oh wow, yeah. So that was that's the thing, right? They never after that uh after it's those Berlin. shows that get canceled after 
plant's child dies, th- that's the end. They never come back that, to the states. They never play the states. The last <clears throat> the last state was in Berlin too. So think about how much how popular, how much pressure there is on the band at this point, right? And how there is no closure, right? There's no final chapter. They just quit at the peak of their popularity. And the fans were not ready for them to go. And I think the tragedy that breaks them up is part of what makes the community around them just desperate for more. So, end of 80, Page and Plant work together the next year in the Honey Drippers, but that project is meant to be different from Zep on purpose, so it's not the same. Yeah. And so the closest Zep heads get to anything, like Zep coming back together, you already mentioned, and that is the unfortunate three songs at Live Aid in 1985. Yeah. And and it's and man, I remember they pitched it to Mark Goodman from MTV, and he's the one that. You know, because they introduced it. He just, he, before, they're like, Led Zeppelin. And he goes, he like says, he goes, they're doing Stairway. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I put the clip in the show notes and I, I, I revisited it. And I will say, I wanted to think, it, it, I'm sure it's not that bad. It's really, it's, it's really, really bad. bad. It's really bad. It's really, it's really, really, really bad. And it's interesting now, post-mortem to hear Phil Collins, what he says about, the performance versus what Robert Plant says about the performance and what I don't think Jimmy Page talks about the performance very much. Um, there is an interview also, um, which I'm happy to share so we can put in the show notes too, man, uh, where MTV is talking to, to Robert Plant mainly because Jimmy Page is like, I mean, he can barely like keep his, he's like grinning so much. He looks like the Joker. Like it's just all yeah, over. Yeah. And I guess Phil Collins is talking a little bit, and then Robert Plant says something like, uh, well, you know, at least I have a career. He, like, drops it in the interview in the most condescending, amazing way, and Plant, like, starts just laughing his face off. And it's like, in it was live on MTV. I mean, how much that's is the how, closest? How much is Phil to, Collins to blame? Because his drumming is not very good, and they do the two drummer thing with him and Tony Thompson. It, yeah. It's just it's all strange. And it, it, what's fun is if you go look at this video that I put in the show notes, you can read the comment section on the video, and that's a blast. And I'm just going to read a random comment that struck me when I was looking at them. Kathy Anunzio left this review a year ago in the year of our Lord 2021. (laughs) She wrote this. I live in Philly and was at this concert. All everyone talked about was how great it was going to be to see Led Zeppelin perform live again. You could have bottled the adrenaline from that crowd. When they took the stage, we went out of our minds and then disaster struck. When they began playing rock and roll, people in the crowd began looking at each other as if to find some explanation on the face of a stranger as to why this train wreck was happening. (laughs) Bad turned to worse when they began playing Whole Lotta Love. The groans were audible. Somewhat, but not quite redeemed by Stairway, it was too late. The fans had already delivered their verdict. A lot of people rode the L train to the concert, including me. And if you think this comment section is bad, you should have heard the comments on the L ride home that night. Wow. I mean, ho- I mean, holy moly. There's no rehearsals. That's what happened. I think you can start to understand what might cause even a desperate, delusional Led Zepp diehard to hear the beginnings of Lenny Wolf howling through Kingdom Come's Get It On in the dark winter days of 1988 and try to will it, will it into being that what he is experiencing is actually the greatest band of all time finally getting it right again. So in 88, also... Led Zeppelin, Does, the remaining members, they do they played, do the back, yes, and so, it was May. It's after, so so this happens yes. in January and March. I was just going to ignore this to not confuse people, but since you brought it up, I think it's worth mentioning. So there is another chance for Zeppelin to get back together that happens, uh, like sort of at the six month point after all of this junk has happened with Kingdom Come. So Kingdom Come happens in January. The who is this? Is this Led Zepp moment happens in January? The record comes out in March. And then this next regrouping of the three original members of Led Zeppelin happens in May. And this time they play with Jason Bonham, but it's still pretty disappointing. 
Yeah. They play Kashmir far out. Um, but what's, but think about where this conversation's happening with Kingdom Come, right? And that sounds like Led Zeppelin. And then imagine being little Mark Murdoch, 14 years old, hormones freaking out, sitting around watching HBO <laughs> and fucking Led Zeppelins on damn TV, dude. And they don't suck. And like it's that it isn't as bad as it would the Live Aid yeah, thing was. Yeah. Because I, I saw that as a kid. They I mean, really I, threw the curve I, with the Live Aid thing. Anything was going to be better than that. Yeah. So, um, and I mean, it wasn't super awesome, but it was really cool. Like, it was really freaking Led Zeppelin. I mean, that was kind of as close as you kind of got. So, like, for me, like, so how does that change the narrative of what happens to Kingdom Clone now and how well they're perceived? So Because th- now we already have Led Zeppelin, right? There's an amazing article that ran in the Washington Post in June of 88. So this would have been after the Zeppelin thing. And it's written by Kingdom Come's guitarist's brother. Okay, so Danny Stagg is the name of the guy who plays guitar. And his brother writes this piece called My Brother the Rockstar. And he gives us this courtside view of watching the success his brother obtains in this first year. And he is very quick to say that him and his whole family were trying to get Danny Stagg to quit because he's 27 and he's basically taking odd jobs and playing in bars and nights at night and he is not getting any success. And then he goes, does this uh, audition with 30 other guitarists and ends up getting the gig in Kingdom Come with Lenny Wolf. I'm going to read a little bit from the middle of this piece to give us a sense of the dichotomy that existed for this band between listeners and critics, okay? Because that's the thing I keep coming back to, right? People like them, yeah. critics did not. Right. The LP became a record industry sensation, debuting on the Billboard charts at the amazing number 51 on March 19th and screaming to number 12 in just seven weeks. An incredible feat for an unknown band. Uh, and then there's an aside here that says Robert Plant's new LP, Now in Zen, debuted at number 55 a week earlier. Kingdom Come, which is now number 25 at the time of this writing, which is June of 88, has sold almost a million copies in three months. In three months. And now this is the brother of Danny Stagg saying, my father, a Count Basie freak, has started studying the AOR pl- airplay charts in Radio and Records magazine. My mother has started watching Headbangers Ball on MTV for glimpses of Kingdom Come's first video, which nobody likes. Dan is, has suddenly become multimedia boy. He's in videos. He's in giant posters in record stores. He's on pictures on metal magazine covers. He's in articles in Rolling Stones. He's doing radio interviews. The only bad news was in the record reviews. This band has been critic-proof. It's found its audience, but from USA Today to the Los Angeles Times, the pop scribes, to put it bluntly, hit the band pretty hard for robbing the grave of Led Zeppelin. Wow. I love this piece. Uh, it's I can't wait so to read good. This. It's so interesting. It's such an interesting artifact, because it's th- at I, this point, it's 30-something years old. Oh, and I, I can't wait to read this, man. Thanks for finding this awesome piece. That's great. Now, what seems cool. to happen next is that the band itself starts talking to the press, which is a very bad move, especially when the press has it out for you. Like, we already know the press does not like them. So they start doing interviews. And, I mean, you've already been throwing this around, but this is the Kingdom Clone thing comes from the press, right? They start calling them that in 88. Uh, and I've searched high and low high and low for the actual text of the article that I'm about to talk about, but I cannot find it. I can find where on eBay I can buy the magazine, which I'm tempted to do. But if you read much about Kingdom Come, the next element in this story that cannot be ignored is the Kerrang! interview. If for some reason you're listening to the show and you do not know what Kerrang! is, it is a British heavy music magazine that started in 81. And I think if what happens at Kerrang! doesn't happen, Kingdom Come might have a totally different place in history. I don't know what that place would be, but it might be different. But in early 88, the band does this interview with Kerrang! And when it's published, there is a report in this article that someone in the band... Do you, do you know what I'm getting at here? Um, I can't remember this one, no. That someone in the band, and there's different stories depending on what you read, and this is why I wanted to see the text of the article so badly. Most of the time, the finger is pointed at Lenny Wolf, the main guy, the guy from Germany. Someone says, according to the journalist Sikarang, that they'd never heard Led Zeppelin. 
<laughs> yes, I know. I've heard of that. I, that's uh, that's so right. I forgot that that happened. Holy shit! This is what kills that them. Happened. This is what that's has what erased them, them from history. That erased them from history. You're so right. Oh my god! It Brian, follows I them to this day. That anecdote is in almost everything you read about them. If you Google Kingdom Come Band right now, you'll find the videos, and then you will find wow. shorthand reports of people saying basically, "Hey, that's the band that said they never heard of Led Zeppelin." Now, there's a oh 2011 gosh. interview in the show notes with Lenny, and he claims that Kerrang! took a quote from Danny Stagg, the guitar player, out of context. He says, in 2011, he says that Danny was joking and saying, who's Jimmy Page? Like, being a smartass. Because they kept coming up against that in interviews, and at some point during the Kerrang! thing, he said that, and then the Kerrang! writer took it as like being see like and framed it as being serious that th- th- now that is that could be totally rewriting or you know rewriting history i don't know that that is what happened but that is what lenny wolf is on the record as saying happened um but this instance aside forget that forget the kerrang piece if you want there are other pieces of press that make me think that someone actually said something stupid like that because <sighs> there's an la times piece that is also in the show notes, that is also excellent. And it was published on July 17th of 88. And it is titled Kingdom Come, Not Just Cloning Around. Um, And this piece is also unhelpful to the legend of Kingdom Come. In this LA Times piece, Danny Stagg, the guitar player uh, that we've been talking about, claims that Jimi Hendrix, not Jimmy Page, is his inspiration. And this is a quote from the article. Stagg said he was mainly influenced by Jimi Hendrix and to a lesser degree by Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, Johnny Winter, and Jimmy Page. Quote, When hard rock guitarists hear me play, they think of Page, Stagg said. That's their frame of reference. If they knew anything, they could really hear Hendrix in my style. Some people are just ignorant. End quote. Yikes. Same article. Wow. Lenny, oh Lenny Wolf is quoted as saying this in that same article. Quote, we didn't set out to copy them. When Kingdom Come started, there was no master plan. When I was sitting in my room writing these songs, I had no idea the album would sound like this. So here, here's the thing. <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty, But having the guys deny this in any way is counterproductive. But, right. again, there's a fan base. And you've already talked about this. What does Kingdom Come get to do in the summer of 88? They get to play, they get to open up the Monsters of Rock tour, man. Do you want to give us that lineup? Um, I'm just going to say one band on there that wasn't the headliner, and that band is Metallica. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think Metallica might have played second on this lineup. It's Kingdom Come, Metallica, Dawkin, Scorpions, Van Halen. Right. And and on that tour, I know more about Metallica in that tour because Metallica was dumping Justice songs on an audience that didn't have that record. So they had the the stage set up like part of it, not the not the not, you know, Lady Justice in the back, but they had the riser and stuff built. Um, So they were they were punching people in the face with a couple of those songs. Um, But yes, so Kingdom Come. Got to go on it, like what? Like, you know, middle of the afternoon or something? Yeah, so that's the thing. While this tour definitely sold tickets because it was so expensive. I mean, it's it's basically billed as one of the most expensive tours of all time. And because it was so expensive, it needed to have like 50,000 plus fans everywhere. So they were were literally playing stadiums. And it didn't sell that many tickets, right? It's one of those things where on scale, it's, you know, sure, tens of thousands of people win, but it didn't hit the, the sales goals. So... In the midst of all of this press that this inexperienced metal band is doing, seemingly on their own, like it does not appear they have anyone in PR, they keep getting asked why the tour is tanking. So this is in the LA Times piece. They straight up say, why do you think this tour is not working? And this is what Danny Stagg, the guitar player, says. Quote, they overprojected badly. There wasn't as much interest in this kind of show as they thought. There have been big crowds, but not nearly as big as expected. And then... Lenny Wolf, I'm reading again from the article. Wolf cited some other factors. Quote, one problem is that the weekday shows start too early. People are still at work. Another thing is there are a lot of different musical styles in the show. Maybe kids don't want to spend all that money and all that time just to see two of their favorites. And then continuing in the in the article. As as an opening wow. act, Kingdom Come has to play before most of the crowd shows up. 
And Danny Stagg says on the record to the LA Times, it's a real drag looking at all those empty seats. It does not inspire you. Wolf has a particular problem with doing early afternoon shows. Quote, and he, he in 2011 doubles down on this statement and says it again when they ask him about Monsters of Rock Tour. I'm a night owl, he complained, but I have to get up at 9.30 in the morning, have breakfast, and be ready to scream my lungs out at 1.30. I'm not at my peak then. Rock and roll is night music, not afternoon music. I'll be glad when this tour is over and things can get back to normal. <laughs> He's playing with that tour is like the most dream tour to be on for like a nobody. It's like the best tour ever. As you can see, they're kind of their own worst enemy. Yeah. They put out a second LP and then everybody but Lenny leaves the band. Now, reading from a blabbermouth piece <laughs> that is in it's it's in the show notes. You can go check it out. There's an interview with James Kotak, the drummer, and they ask him why the band broke up, and this is his response. Well, I hate to say it, but there was somebody in the band who said the wrong thing to the press and created a lot of bad blood. And you can live and die by the press, especially back in the 80s. I mean, I hate to say it, but look what happened to Quiet Riot. R.I.P. Kevin DeBrow. But man, his mouth ruined that band. Just too much talking and talking, and we had a similar situation. Instead of accepting the compliments, hey man, you guys sound like Led Zeppelin. It was like, "Uh uh-uh, no we don't. And I was the complete opposite. If I was ever asked, who's your favorite drummer? I'd just tell people John Bonham. Who's your favorite band? I'd just tell them Led Zeppelin. <laughs> they, hey, and maybe one of the two. I'm gonna I'm gonna say for sure of the two people on this podcast right now, one of them has seen multiple Led Zeppelin tribute bands. That's <laughs> that's just me. I don't know. Have you ever done that? Because I've I've seen than, a lot seen of different tribute ones. bands. I've seen Guns N' Roses tribute bands. I'm try, I know that you used to go see them all the time because we they would come to town for a while. It was all the time, and yeah. uh, and I remember you grabbing you know press tickets or whatever and, and telling me about how great they were. But Zozo and uh, there's more than one. What Led Zeppelin Experience, which is Bottoms, right? There's there's like Led Zeppelin two. There's like a band you know, named after the second LP. You know, Bottom is opening for Kid Rock now. Yes. Yeah, it's a real thing that's happening. Okay, so <laughs> hold on. Before before we f- get completely sidetracked with that, we haven't discussed another component of this, which is what did Led Zeppelin think of Kingdom Come? Oh, wow. This is this is great. A point of view. There are there, there's a couple stories. And both of them come from Lenny at different times in history, and they're slightly different. In 88, Lenny told the press this story. This is from that LA Times piece. He, he, being Robert Plant, knew people from Kingdom Come were in the audience, so he dedicated a couple of songs to us, because they, they go and see him one night. This, is, this comes up in a couple different interviews. He doesn't hate us. He has mixed feelings. He told Derek Schulman, who, who signed the band to Polygram, that he got cold chills on his neck when he heard our album. Uh, Wolf, however, and this is from the LA Times piece, Wolf, however, didn't go backstage to meet Plant. Quote, I didn't want to press my luck. I don't want to chase after him. He probably didn't want to talk to me. Maybe in a year or two after things settle down, I can shake his hand. I just wanted to escape the whole thing back then. Now, in the 2011 piece, Lenny says this, and I don't know if this is a different time because it is a different story. When we were playing in London the night before Robert Plant was playing, we went down to see him. He was goofing with us, having fun, and was so relaxed. Robert Plant is like above all. He's really above everything. He was joking with us, and it was really great. It really made me sad when I noticed Jimmy Page, who was one of my heroes, starting to whine about Kingdom Come, who was never really a threat at all. So I don't know what that's from, but apparently at some point Jimmy Page whined about Kingdom Come. Robert Plant is a fan. I don't know if any of that's true. It's all coming from Lenny Wolf. I do suggest going and reading all of these newer interviews in the show notes because I was able to dig up one from everybody except maybe the bass player. So there's a Danny Stagg interview, a James Kotak interview, and a Lenny interview that are all within the last like 10 to 12 years. Yeah. And it they all have interesting perspectives. So Danny and Lenny are sort of on the same page, and then James obviously was a little more disgruntled about how everything went down. And the weird thing that's happened is now... The Lenny is not in the band, and the rest of the original band is together with a different singer. But what happened in the early 90s is, uh, or, or after that second album, is that everybody left except Lenny, and then Lenny toured as the voice with a different band for a while. Got it. Okay. So it, it's strange, and I, I think maybe the best quote, which I don't have written down, but I did read at some point during this, and it's in one of these articles, is, you know, 
Lenny, looking back on the band, basically says, you know, I really wish we hadn't gotten so successful so quickly, only because I think we would have stayed together longer. He said, we just didn't have, and this, this really does sound like something that comes from age, and it's probably true. He says, you know, we just didn't know we, we weren't close enough friends to make it work. Like, because we didn't have time. He said, and he cites, like, you know, Aerosmith and some of these bands that, have, you know, have really weathered a long career have done it because they had a lot of time to get to know each other and get through the tough times. Like, we just, we just got famous really, really quickly, and then it was all over. I mean, they are auditioning. Danny Stagg's auditioning for that band at the beginning of 87. And by the beginning of 88, things have blown up and they're headed out for the Monsters of Rock tour. So it all happens yeah. incredibly quick. Yeah, in a year. And think about how long it takes to get to know anybody or how long it takes to be in a creative relationship it's with anybody. Not even a creative relationship, just a business. So even if it's it was a business, just a yeah. business, right? Well, and it's not just a business. It is a creative relationship. So you have both of those factors at odds. But I, it, absolutely fascinating story. And I'm happy we got to discuss it. Oh, my and I can't believe that I got to live through all of that, and I can't believe we've even talked about it and we didn't get to go out with my. Can we go out with my favorite song? Oh, what's, can we what? Do that? What is your favorite Kingdom Come song? What love can be? Come on, dude. All right, uh, do you not I, know I, about that? I, I want to be your best friend for all of time. <laughs> I want to be the tissue for your tears. <laughs> like, oh, it's so cheesy. To be alone, like everything, like <laughs> everything about it is so over the top. It's so uh, gorgeous. All right, well, um, if you want to get involved in the show, it's we are the story guys at gmail.com. And, and what do people need to keep doing until next time? Keep telling stories, people, and keep drying those tears. Come to me now.